Hello and welcome to Other Voices, Other Choices. I'm Wilton Vaught, producer and host of the show. This is podcast number eight in the series and is the first half of an event which took place in Washington, D.C. on April 4th, 2017, entitled Remembering Past Wars and Preventing the Next. You can find a video of the entire event on my blog, OtherVoicesOtherChoices.com, and at the YouTube channel of the same name. You can find the podcast on iTunes. The moderator for this event was David Swanson of World Beyond War. He'll introduce the speakers, so without further ado... My name is David Swanson. I work for World Beyond War, among other groups, uh, and I will just give you a very brief introduction of each speaker before they get started, uh, and we'll go through a, a lineup of incredible speakers here and then take questions and discussion for everybody. Uh, we, of course, have put these events together uh, last night in New York and today in D.C. and, and elsewhere coming up. Uh, because of a number of anniversaries and events. Uh, that is that 100 years ago today, the Senate voted to get into a war to end all wars, and they've been trying to use wars to end all wars unsuccessfully for 100 years, and we want to try using something else to end all wars. Uh, 50 years ago today, Dr. Martin Luther King gave his most famous speech against war at Riverside Church, uh, most of which, if not all of which, still desperately needs to be heard. So we wanted to mark that occasion. Uh, and we knew that this week there would be a treaty being negotiated at the United Nations uh, on banning nuclear weapons. Uh, and we thought this was a very positive movement to talk about in advance. Uh, so we've got together speakers who can touch on all of these topics and uh, and lead into a rich discussion of, of how we move forward from here and, and prevent future wars. First, we have Michael Kazin, who is a professor of history at Georgetown and the author, among other things, of a wonderful book called War Against War, The American Fight for Peace, 1914 to 1918. Michael Kazin. I haven't got much time, and I want to. World War One is a, a huge subject, so I want to just uh, sort of focus on several points. Um, first of all, important to remember that World War One was a every war is a tragedy, uh, but World War One was, if anything, more tragic than most because unlike World War Two, unlike Vietnam, um, none of the belligerents uh, who got involved in that war, uh, Tsarist Russia, Britain, France, uh, Imperial Germany, Austria-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire, others really wanted to fight. None of them really expected the war to happen. In fact, the very day that the Archduke and Archduchess of Austria-Hungary uh, were killed by a Serbian terrorist on the streets of uh, Sarajevo in Bosnia, the um, German uh, high command of the Navy was uh, having dinner with, a celebratory dinner with the high command of the British Navy in the port of Kiel. You know, they drank a lot and they toasted the health of the Kaiser on one hand and the king on the other hand. And then a month later, a little more than a month later, they were, of course, mortal enemies. Now, the war was, as former President Barack Obama uh, put it about the Iraq War, a stupid war. Um, it was a war in which uh, different empires were battling for position. Uh, they all thought it was a defensive war. Of course, they all decided they would have to go on the offensive uh, in order to win this defensive war. And in the end, 17 million people died. 
17 million people died. That's why it was called the Great War, uh, and it's still called the Great War in, uh, in Europe. Well, how did the United States get into the war? It's a complicated story. I haven't got uh, time really to talk about it at all. But in general, Woodrow Wilson uh, was ambivalent about getting to the war in many ways. Uh, he wanted uh, to make sure that Germans wouldn't win because he thought Germany was uh, a tyrannical uh, country, even though they had an elected legislature, uh, the Reichstag, in which the Socialist Party was the, was the largest party. Uh, on the other hand, he thought that Americans, especially in 1914, 1915, uh, when the war began, the first year or so of the war, did not want to get into the war. It was very clear they didn't want to get into the war. And in fact, there was a peace movement, which I write about in the book, which was mobilizing quite effectively to try to convince Americans that there was no need to have a huge army uh, the size of the German army, the British army, the French army, or the Russian army. America had no interest in, in fighting this war. But gradually, through a complex process, uh, which had a lot to do with the... Germans uh, using submarines, this frightening new weapon, to try to equal the odds against the Royal Navy, uh, the British Navy, which is far superior on the high seas. U.S. Uh, ships were torpedoed. Uh, Americans on British ships like the Lusitania, the famous passenger ship, torpedoed in the spring of 1915, were killed. Um, and gradually, Wilson decided that in order to protect American rights, uh, to trade with the belligerents, the British and the French, because uh, it was impossible to trade with the Germans because the British had blockaded the North Sea, the only sea route to Germany. Uh, in order to protect America's freedom of the seas, uh, he had to get into the war. And also, Wilson was an idealist, uh, you could say a, na a naive idealist. And sometimes naive idealism leads to repression, because if uh, you feel you're right and everybody else is wrong, um, and uh, they, they should follow your, your lead. And uh, Wilson went from being a seemingly a friend of the peace movement in 1915 and 1916. He ran in 1916 for re-election on the slogan, he kept us out of war, uh, which meant he kept us out of war against Germany and Austria-Hungary, as well as he kept us out of war against Mexico, where there were some skirmishes in 1916 on the border. But once he decided the United, the United States had to get into the war, he decided everybody he had been somewhat sympathizing with in the peace movement, who often met with him in the White House, to talk about what they thought he should do to mediate an end to the war in Europe, that all these people should have gotten with the program. He, got, he decided to go to war, and therefore everyone should go, should go with him. Some parallels to George W. Bush uh, are there. But unlike George W. Bush, he acted on his uh, hatred at this time, or hostility or animosity towards the anti-war movement, and he convinced Congress to sign two of the most repressive laws in American history, the Espionage Act of 1917 and the Sedition Act of 1918, which are actually amendments to the Espionage Act. Uh, without going into all the details about these acts, they basically made it illegal to oppose the war, illegal to oppose the draft. Leaders of the anti-war movement, like the famous anarchist and feminist Emma Goldman, went to jail for organizing a no-conscription league and holding rallies, not saying, you know, destroy the draft physically, just opposing it, thinking that it was a form of slavery. Uh, Eugene Debs, uh, the most popular socialist in American history, though you might include Bernie Sanders these days, went to jail for giving a speech at a socialist picnic in Canton, Ohio in 1918. And what did he say in the speech? He basically said, war is bad for the working class, which socialists have been saying for decades. <laughs> but he said it in 1918, and he was given a 10-year sentence. And there are many more examples of that. Conscious objection was a new idea uh, at the time, and it was very controversial, and it was very difficult to qualify as a conscious objector at the beginning of the war. It got a little easier towards the end of the war. So there was a very large anti-war movement I write about in the book. And one of the things I think it's important, I think it maybe has a lesson for 
the resistance against Trump today, too, is that you had a lot of different uh, people, a lot, of, a lot of different ideological backgrounds and, and, and belief sets uh, who were involved in, in this war. Some of the leaders of them were Dixiecrats, white supremacists who've been uh, repressing blacks from voting in the South, uh, like a guy named Claude Kitchen, who was majority leader of the South, Robert LaFollette, who was one of the people who supported the NAACP when it was founded and um, was very much sort of on the left fringe of, of mainstream American politics. Uh, he was a Republican. You had the whole Socialist Party uh, opposing the war. You had feminists and suffragists until war was declared. Most suffragists opposed the war as well. So it was a broad coalition. It's what later on, 1930s, would be called a popular front. Now, one can argue, people on the left, as you know, argue all the time about, you know, should you have certain people in the coalition? Shouldn't you have certain people in the coalition? You had black activists willing to work in a limited way with white supremacists who often weren't willing to work with them. And you had feminists willing to work with guys who clearly didn't want women to vote. But they had one thing in common. They thought the war would be an absolute disaster for the United States, and that's why they opposed it. Uh, and they were pretty confident, actually, they had the people on their side. And this is an interesting side that most people don't realize. The actual vote in Congress uh, 100 years ago, today and tomorrow, was pretty lopsided in favor of going to war. There were six senators, only six senators, uh, who voted against uh, going to war, including the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, by the way, a Democrat, a guy named William Stone from Missouri, and only 50 congresspeople, 49 men, one woman, the only first congresswoman in American history voted against the war as well. But this is pretty small numbers, of course. Uh, they were far outnumbered. However, the peace movement was pretty confident that they still had a majority of people on their side if only those people could be heard. And so the main tactic that the peace movement used uh, in the last couple months before war was declared in February and March 1917 was democracy. They said, let's hold a referendum, a popular national referendum on whether the United States should go to war or not. This, of course, there's nothing in the Constitution to allow that. Congress would have had to okay it. Maybe President Wilson would have had to okay it as well. So <laughs> it was a long shot at best, and of course it never happened. But they were afraid, that the, the Wilson administration was afraid that this actually might happen, or if it, could, if it did happen, they were afraid that it would be a very close vote, and they might even lose it. And in several, actually several dozen congressional districts around the country, congressmen did hold referendum of their own. Now, you know, they were anti-war congressmen, so not surprisingly, uh, they came out lopsidedly against going to war. But it's important to remember how divided the country was at that time, as divided it was during the Vietnam War, uh, as divided it was in the early days, at least, of, uh, of the Iraq invasion in 2003. Because, you know, we, we often forget how, how influential uh, peace-minded Americans have been in American history at different times. They very seldom have won. That's obviously true. <laughs> Everyone up, know, up here knows the, the sad history of uh, a failure of peace movements. But they often uh, are, uh, feel like they're close to winning. And to understand how they organized, why they thought they could win, uh, I think is, uh, is important. A, a couple things that you might not know about the peace movement uh, or the peace sentiment, I should say, during uh, World War I. First of all, uh, there was a draft for the first time since the Civil War. And if you know anything about the history of the Civil War, the draft it was very unpopular, both in the North and the South. And it seemed at first that the draft was going to be obeyed by, by most young men. Uh, there was a registration of 10 million men uh, on one day in July 1917. And you know, the Army was able to get you know, the, the people it wanted, uh, for the most part. And in fact, the United States only fought in combat, American troops only fought in combat in, in France for the last six months of the war in any serious way. And most Americans who died, died in one battle at the end of the war, 
battle in eastern France, uh, the Meuse Argonne. So, um, you know, there would have been more anti-war sentiment if the war had lasted longer, most likely, but it was pretty short for the United States. But one of the things about the draft was that uh, a lot of people did resist it. A lot of young men did resist it. Thousands of men went to Mexico, uh, not just Mexican-Americans, uh, going back across what was then a very porous border, but uh, people of different races, men of different races. Also, three million young men didn't register at all for the draft, as they had to do. 350,000 uh, men refused to show up when they were called, <laughs> and uh, who were registered. Uh, and there was all kinds of stories about draft resistance, which I won't have time to go into, but one of the most intriguing ones, though it also failed. Anybody ever, ever hear of the Green Corn Rebellion? Mm -hmm. Oklahoma, at the time, was, believe it or not, one of the most left-wing states in the country. Yes, indeed. It was a red state, which means something different back then than it does now. 17% of, of, of voters in Oklahoma in 1912 voted for Eugene Debs for president, the socialist candidate. And socialists won various little towns, one controlled little towns, uh, one called Antlers, Oklahoma, for several years. And many of the socialists and uh, labor unionists and the industrial workers of the world, the radical labor union at that time, uh, who were so opposed to going to war, what they thought was a rich man's war and a poor man's fight, as they put it, that they organized a armed group to march on Washington to get to go to Congress and try to stop them from prosecuting the war. Well, they weren't well organized, and they were stopped by a larger force of police and militia, and they never got outside the Mexico. They, 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 they never crossed the Oklahoma border into Arkansas. But it shows you how much rage there was uh, in a place where we don't really think of as a pretty radical place today. Uh, in fact, Barack Obama didn't win one county in Oklahoma <laughs> either times he ran in, 19, in 2008 and 2012. So anyway, in closing, we should remember World War I as the first of many what you might call wars of choice that the United States has fought. Wars that the United States did not have to fight, that they had no self-interest in fighting, and that arguably hurt a lot more people uh, than it helped. And if you think about that, uh, one of the intriguing, uh, or perhaps not so intriguing, but horrifying elements of American involvement in World War I was U.S. troops made the difference in the Germans losing the war not by fighting a battle, because as I said, there was only one big battle in which American troops fought, but two million American troops got to France by the summer of 1918. The Germans and the French and the, and the Austro-Hungarians were exhausted. There were mutinies going on in these armies. The Russians uh, were mutinying and the Bolsheviks were gaining, uh, partly because they wanted to get the Russians out of the war. And the Germans, you know, just could not fight against two million fresh troops. So they unleashed a couple uh, really final offensives in France in the spring, early summer 1918. And when they lost, it was clear they had lost the war. It was called an armistice, but it was a surrender, um, in fact. Well, think about what would have happened if the Germans had not lost the war, if there had been a negotiated settlement, or even if the Germans had won the war. Uh, this was not Hitler, by the way. It was an authoritarian government, but with an elected legislature, which had a lot of power, though it didn't have power over the military. Without US troops, you probably don't get uh, World War II, at least you don't get Hitler. So the best of intentions that Wilson actually had, and many Americans who'd spoiled the war actually had, to make a world made safe for democracy, as Wilson put it on April 2nd, 1917, ended up perhaps, it's counterfactual, but perhaps leading to the worst war in history, even worse war than World War I. Thank you. Thank you, Michael Kazin. Fast forward 50 years, Eugene per year, is a journalist, an activist, an excellent radio host, uh, the author, among other things, of Shackled and Chained. 
mass incarceration in capitalist America. Uh, welcome, Eugene Perrier. I'm so appreciative to be here. I really sort of grew up on stories of, of Dr. King. My father was the founder of the Nonpartisan Voters League in Tuskegee, Alabama, and they worked with SCLC. So uh, to some degree, the Kingian philosophy is very deep in why I do what I do today. I think it's always worth remembering because I think, especially for those of us who know, I mean, certainly the triple evils, poverty, militarism, and racism are still with us. Um, and I think probably for many of us in this room, um, those are probably the three, three things that would put a good umbrella over the, a lot of the things we care a lot about and work towards. So they're certainly still with us. And, and so when I think about the permanence of that reality, I also think, well, what are some of the things that we can take from Dr. King? Because I think you can go the other way. And I think the one way sometimes people say is, oh, we're still fighting the same fight, as if perhaps they weren't successful. And in some ways they weren't successful, but I still think uh, there's a lot to be learned. So the first thing that I think about is the power of, of, of institutions and the importance of institutional change. I mean, I think especially towards the end of his life, if you look at the history of, of Dr. King, and certainly especially even many of his own advisors, I mean, not wanting him to step out against the war uh, in Vietnam, but even though this is less well known, not being terribly supportive uh, of the Poor People's Campaign, and in fact, people who were sort of in both camps trying to pit fighting against poverty and fighting against the war as two totally separate uh, struggles and two totally separate things that you, know, you couldn't do without one without the other. You were mutually exclusive, and Dr. King was fighting for a synthetic vision of bringing those three things together. And I think, you know, one of the things that we often lose, I don't know if we lose it because the sort of moral language and the beauty uh, of Dr. King's words and speeches and the knowledge that's in them, um, unfortunately, we don't read his books as much as we talk about his speeches. Uh, and I think Chaos and Community, his final book, has a lot to teach us, but that's parenthetical to this. I think a lot of it is, is sort of drawing and using the moral implications of certain practices and using the kind of comparison to almost human reality and morality to draw something to, to something fundamentally wrong in the core of America. I think a lot of people would call it institutional. I think he was approaching it in almost sort of a of a humanized kind of way almost in terms of a soul and a heart and how we conceive of ourselves as a, as a country and a people and the things we would want to take forward. But it's notable that in the Riverside speech, uh, he makes a very direct connection in terms of war making to profit making. And, and, and there's a direct line in there. I, I read it to someone earlier today and I can't remember the whole thing now, um, but the general gist of it being that people will look back on this moment and they'll see all, or they'll reflect on this moment and they'll see all this money that was being spent all the way overseas uh, on all these wars and it had nothing to do with any of these people in the countries, but only, I think he uses the exact phrase, the individual capitalist in the West. And I think that that's an important and a powerful thing, because I think so often the way we get taught, certainly in civics class, uh, about political change in America is that it really is a, it's a question of individuals, right? It's a question of some people being bad, some people being good, uh, removing the bad people and putting in the good people. And to some degree that is true, but I think perhaps we all may agree with this, even some of the best people can't accomplish very much oftentimes, regardless of how logical it seems to be at the moment. And I think the focus of Dr. King on something institutional in America that drives a lot of these practices uh, and that ultimately has to be uprooted and changed is, is absolutely key and absolutely important to understanding not only the work we have to do today, but the permanence uh, of the work. Because when it's just about individuals, I think we can see right now how easy it is that things that seem settled uh, are no longer so.
You know, the second thing that I, I think is always so important to remember is the importance and the focus of culture, especially when we're talking about war and violence, which I think Dr. King, I mean, his famous quote, my country is the greatest purveyor of violence on the planet Earth is well known. I think the significance of it, though, isn't often fully grasped. I mean, America, I, I think, I, I could be wrong about this, but I actually think the United States is the most violent country in the world. You know, unfortunately, the, the poster child for violence in America is young black males. Uh, and the way violence is more or less sort of understood and, and discussed in our society is vis-a-vis -vis community violence and, you know, Donald Trump's constant references to Chicago. But, I, you know, compared to what they're doing with drone strikes, it's uh, very little compares to that. Uh, certainly, they're not doing double taps on first responders to kill double the number of people like they were in Pakistan. But be that as it may, I think that it's something that we don't really uh, recognize enough. I mean, whether it's the sporting events, and I thought that's why Colin Kaepernick taking that stand was so powerful. I mean, many people have taken a stand uh, around the issue of police brutality. Many people have taken bold stands and brave stands around the issues of police violence. But the fact that, and I think you can see in the response to Colin Kaepernick when he kneeled during the anthem, the unbelievable just vitriol that went towards him, even to the point where so many people were like, well, we're not saying that he can't speak out, but you can't do it in the anthem. Don't do it during the anthem. And I mean, just the unbelievable militaristic patriotism. I mean, you know, every year before the Super Bowl, the B-2 bomber flies over the Super Bowl. I think most people just think that, oh yeah, that's just like a cool plane that's flying over, but that is a plane that's designed to evade radar to drop nuclear weapons. Um, and what does it say that the most watched TV event of the year, one of the most celebrated things, the thing that people bet the most money on, maybe one of the few things that can bring large numbers of people together across, that's not like an official holiday, across a variety of lines, that it opens up with a celebration of dropping nuclear bombs, or at least the capability to do so. I think every television show, every movie, you know, we talk about this a lot in policing, that one of the problems in terms of how people conceive the police uh, is because, you know, it's what they see on TV, right? Because they don't have any contact with the criminal justice system. I think it's the same thing with war. And it's so easy to, you know, reduce sort of the moral consequences of war or whatever in some movie to people making hard choices, but I don't think we think so heavily about the normalization of war and the militaristic solving of conflicts with movies, televisions, video games more than ever. There's certainly no surprise why the U.S. Army travels around in malls now and sets up video game things. And the real are these video games, these first-person shooters. They're the most popular games. All the kids want to play some Call of Duty something. Every kid I know, they want to play Call of Duty. And they're in them six, seven, eight hours a day. And they've become so realistic that people are even developing groups of friends around the world on the basis of like murdering people in the context of these wars, which are often highly reactionary. You know, one of the Call of Duties uh, which is written, by the way, by Christopher Nolan, who wrote all those new Batman movies, you have to invade Venezuela and kill Hugo Chavez, um, who's a mortal threat to America and going to overthrow the United States and sending Hezbollah fighters to blow us all up. You know, I'm sure you've heard that before, but you get a sense that if you're a kid, how do you even know? I mean, you're being inculcated with these images day in and day out. And I think Dr. King was so good in fo focusing on the cultural roots of the violence that, that exists. And I think beyond the, the correctness or incorrectness of any particular war, um, certainly this was Obama's uh, uh, speech in 2008, you know, I'm not against all wars, I'm against dumb wars, or whatever the exact language was. I think we often forget how often we just sort of assume that there must be some sort of like good opportunity. Like, yes, let's, there's gotta be somewhere in the world where America, we should go to war and that's good. And I think a lot of that is based on the normalization of war and violence as a problem solving mechanism in our culture. I think third, and, and this picks up a little bit, I think, on what Michael was saying, was the importance of, of broad-based coalitions. I, I'm reading this, this fantastic, unpublished dissertation about the Poor People's Campaign. I have no idea why this gentleman did not publish this as a book. I feel like I want to look him up and like force him to do it. I mean, it's 
marvelous. No research out there like this. And it's all about, uh, it's talking so much about the first, I think maybe, a hundred pages about how they brought together this coalition for the Poor People's Campaign, the difficulties that it took to bring it together, but the importance of the singular role of King, and later in the book it talks about that's why things didn't work out as well in Resurrection City, but the singular focus of King and not only being able to build coalitions, but understanding how to subordinate sort of the core leading position of his own role and certainly of the black struggle, which had brought everyone together. But there's all these new rising liberation movements that are coming together that to some degree felt marginalized and displaced because no one recognized uh, the power of where they were coming from. And they certainly didn't have the same place in American culture as the African-American community because of the history of slavery and the ability of King to subordinate and even say to some of his own lieutenants and people he had recruited to take a step back and to bring forward voices that hadn't been heard. And to really, I mean, some of those people, you know, King is a noted pacifist. Uh, some of the folks who were coming from the Southwest who were part of the Poor People's Campaign uh, made their name leading armed raids on courthouses to demand land rights for Chicano Americans uh, and the abolition of a number of those, those borders and territories. And the ability to build a coalition around a nonviolent action from such a diverse group of people who at various times almost came to blows in the meeting, but finding a way to work it out. Out. And the power of that history now and the fact that the Poor People's Campaign in some ways I think has become maybe the marking campaign for a lot of progressive people in America, bringing a large swath of people together around sort of broadly economic concerns that people can share um, without downgrading the individual realities of various communities and their struggles. And I think that there's something you know, very important to say about that. And the final thing I'll say about this, just, just to wrap here, is the importance of political independence. I was doing a little research, and I have to say this is very surprising to me, um, into the finances of SCLC after the Beyond Vietnam speech, because I was curious as to, you know, Taylor Branch, who has a fantastic trilogy on the civil rights movement, I think the last one, it's not as good as the first one, but it's good. And it, you know, I think it gives a good overview of a lot of the conflicts throughout the end of King's life in terms of some of the institutional power bases that have been supporting him. And, and, I, and I, obviously, when he steps out against the war, he heavily alienates uh, President Lyndon Johnson. That has a huge impact on a, on a lot of different things. And so I was just very surprised to see that Nelson Rockefeller had given SCLC $25,000 in 1967, like two months after the Beyond Vietnam speech. And he was for the war in Vietnam. Nelson Rockefeller. Now, that be, and all that being said, obviously he had his own reasons, but when you sort of read that back, the suppleness with which King was always able to you know, take sides when sides needed to be taken, but to maintain sort of a scrupulously individual course based really on the goals of any one particular movement, I think is an important lesson because it allowed him to sort of leverage different institutional pieces of power at particular moments and to exploit the differences and the contradictions amongst the people at the top in ways that were extraordinarily effective. And we could talk for some time about how he did that in the early 60s with, with Republicans and Democrats. But be that as it may, I think that's an extraordinarily important reality and attitude because you know, everyone who says they're the same thing as you doesn't really want the same thing as you. You know, Samora Michelle, the leader of Mozambique, used to say, beware of the enemy who hides under the same color. The point being, just because someone is black doesn't mean that they're for African liberation. And I think the same thing can be said of, you know, Democrats, quite frankly. I guess I'll just open it up and be quite frank. Uh, some Democrats are fantastic on war and peace issues. Some are terrible. So being a Democrat actually tells people very little about where you stand on war and peace issues. Now, certainly Democrats at certain moments can be the vehicle through which anti-war opinion can make itself known, heard, and effectuated 
terms of legislation, no doubt about that. But in the most general sense, is there an anti-war movement or is there a movement to build electoral majorities for the Democratic Party? Uh, and I think that distinction, there's a lot in there and there's a lot of content in there, but I think certainly if it's a distinction that if we don't make, and certainly this is exactly what happened to Bayard Rustin, and I think this is an extremely relevant piece. Um, he supported the war in Vietnam ultimately and became very wrapped up in the, the militaristic attitudes of the AFL CIA, Solidarity Center is what I would call it, around the world overthrowing governments. And to the end of his life, it was a real sore point when people would raise with him how he'd given up his pacifist commitment uh, to, create, to try to create a more durable political coalition with the labor movement, which was for the war. Um, so I think that's just an important lesson in terms of reaching the ultimate goal through which we uh, are, are trying to achieve. I don't think, you know, the ends don't necessarily justify the means in the most general sense, but I think in the way that certain ends can only be achieved through certain means, right? Um, I think there's a lot of different things that you have to do, but there are some things that can take you uh, down a road to where you'll never get where you want to go. Oh, and finally, the one piece in, in the triple evils, the importance of racism as a war and peace issue, which I think is, is shockingly underrated. I really don't know or understand why or how, but a huge ability of this country to go around the world and do the things it does is because it's able to easily dehumanize people as sort of lesser and other. I'll never forget the day of 9-11. This is the final thing I'll say, but this is a story. You know, the TV, and some of these images, I believe, turned out to be fake, start showing these images of people celebrating uh, that the Twin Towers had gone down. The one they kept coming back to was Pakistan. And I think that was the one that ended up being fake, either that or Gaza. And it was, so my teacher has gone completely AWOL at this moment. He's in actually the side closet throwing things in the closet, so he's gone. So the students are running, the, the inmates running the asylum here. And everybody in the class, except I have to give her credit, my girlfriend at the time, Hattie Smith, um, she lives in San Francisco now, she was the only one, everyone in there started saying, we gotta go over there and we gotta bomb those people, we gotta kill those people. And it was just crazy to me how quickly this like bloodlust erupted amongst people uh, inside of the class and that everyone just agreed. And I think at the time I certainly didn't see it, but I think I see it now more clearly than I did then when there's such a strong othering racist reality that exists in America, it's extraordinarily easy to push demonized narratives about any country that is a non-European derived nation, at least in terms of how they conceive of themselves. And I think that's how narratives like this can pick up so quickly. I mean, you just think about, say, Korea and what's happening in there. Whatever you think about the government, the whole basis of the opposition of the United States to you know, North Korea is that they're weird and they have nuclear weapons. And they're nothing like us, so they must be terrible. Um, Iran, same thing. Uh, Africa is just like one large, dark Warren, Joseph Conrad novel. Um, and I think that's why you don't hear anything about the massive buildup of military forces in Africa right now, because people, oh, well, all those Africans are always fighting over there. Aren't all those Africans fighting? Don't they need somebody to come in there and keep the peace? I think the importance of that to the ability of the war machine to do what it does is so key. So I'll stop there. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to the discussion. You're listening to Other Voices, Other Choices, podcast number eight. This episode is Remembering Past Wars and Preventing the Next, part one, and is the first half of an event which took place in Washington, D.C. on April 4, 2017. You can find a video of the entire event on my blog, OtherVoicesOtherChoices.com, and at the YouTube channel of the same name. You can find the podcast on iTunes. The moderator for this event was David Swanson of World Beyond War. 
Let's fast forward another 50 years to the present. Medea Benjamin is the co-founder of Code Pink, and her books include one, at least one, that is for sale here this evening, Kingdom of the Unjust Behind the U.S.-Saudi Connection. Medea Benjamin. Well, first I wanted to say how thankful I am to David Swanson and World Without War because I think you've given a new sort of umbrella to a lot of our work, not focusing on one war, another war, um, but focusing on the whole thing of war. As uh, Dr. Martin Luther King said, he said, I think war is obsolete. What I think he meant is war should be obsolete. But David, you've really taken it, I think, very much to heart in the whole construction of the organization that it's about ending war. And also commemorating this 50 years of Martin Luther King, when you go back and you look at that speech, it's just astounding. I mean, to think at that time when so many Americans were dying in Vietnam, how hard it is to then come out and not only uh, say that the U.S. was wrong for being there, but say that the U.S. was the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, is an extremely difficult and revolutionary thing to say. But let's remember also at that time, because so many Americans were, were dying, there was an anti-war movement that was being built up that became very uh, rich, enormous. And uh, you fast forward today and you see the difficulty we have of even getting people to pay attention to the fact there, there is not just one war going on, there are many wars going on. And I think the fact that the anti-war movement that actually was quite strong during the um, Bush years, when it was clear that we were trying to stop a war in Iraq, and people could understand that, and we could mobilize massive numbers of people, uh, made it a lot easier to build up an anti-war movement. Then Obama came in, and the anti-war movement just fizzled out. And I think as a time for also self-reflection, we did a terrible job during these last eight years, building awareness, building coalitions, getting a new generation of people to care about these issues. And so here we are after eight years to see that Obama, while he, as Dr. Martin Luther King, got a Nobel Peace Prize, one has to say, what the hell were the Nobel people doing giving him a prize when he was so engaged not only in drone wars but in bombing seven different countries. If you just look at 2016 alone and look at the number of, of bombs that were dropped by Obama's administration, it was 26,712 bombs in that one year alone and unbeknownst to the vast majority of the American people. And while he did do some positive things on the international front like the Iran nuclear deal and opening up the relations with Cuba, for the most part, it was a continuation of allowing the military industrial complex that General Eisenhower warned us about to still control our policies. Then we have the phenomena of Trump coming in. I think some people jokingly thought during the campaign, thinking that Trump would never win, that perhaps he was more of the anti-war candidate than Hillary Clinton was. Uh, we don't know what Hillary Clinton would have done in the first couple of months had she won, but we now see what Trump has done in a very short time. And it's not only just alienating entire sectors of the world like Latin America through his immigrant policy and the, the wall and alienating the Arab Muslim community through the Muslim ban, 
but actually concrete things that he's been doing to increase U.S. intervention overseas. He has been, for example, well, we know he just met uh, with General Sisi, um, that while Obama refused to meet with Sisi and did cut some of the money going to Egypt, uh, it looks like President Trump just loves General Sisi and thinks it doesn't matter that he has 40,000 people in prison, that he came to power in a coup that, uh, that killed uh, about 1,000 people, but he thinks that he is just a fine guy doing a great job. We also have uh, the phenomena that while the Obama administration continued to give over $3 billion of tax money to the Israeli government, there were differences. And the Obama administration did say that they were against settlements. Here comes Trump. And he puts as U.S. ambassador to Israel somebody who's not only fine with settlements, somebody who's actually been financing those settlements. The Obama administration had the, the positive thing of the Iran nuclear deal. We see that President Trump uh, not only trashes the Iran nuclear deal, but that he is becoming closer and closer to the adversaries of Iran as a way to really get at Iran. And I'm particularly thinking of the Saudis. While the Obama administration sold massive amounts of weapons to the Saudis, $115 billion worth, at the end of his time, after eight years, it was actually in December, right before leaving office, I think he started to get second thoughts about it and put a halt on the sale of precision munitions to the Saudis and also started pulling back a little uh, in the support for the Saudis in their war in Yemen. Trump comes in and really as part of his antagonizing of, of Iran, it looks like he is going to lift that halt on the sale of precision munitions and that he is poised to get the U.S. more involved in the war in Yemen. In fact, we have a campaign right now with a bunch of the peace groups to try to halt this disastrous green light that the Trump administration might be giving any day now to the bombing of the main port in Yemen where the humanitarian goods come in, the port of Hudaydah. This is something that the Obama administration was against, and it looks like the Trump administration is for. If this actually happens, it will be even a greater catastrophe than has happened already because, as the UN advisors have said, Yemen is on the brink of famine. Bombing the port of Hudaydah will put Yemen into a famine situation. Uh, we also have the Trump increase in the drone strikes more in January than had been done in the previous year. His increase in U.S. intervention in Iraq uh, we see more civilian casualties in the bombing in Mosul of a residential neighborhood when, than we saw since the U.S. intervention in 2003. And we see an increase in 400 troops to Syria, as well as bombing of a lot of civilian sites like schools and mosques. Uh, we see a loosening of the terms of engagement in Yemen and possibly also now in Somalia and in Afghanistan. In the meantime, there's also another 2,500 paratroopers that have been sent to a staging base in Kuwait. So it looks dire. And even with all of that, it has still been hard to get people to care and to understand how dangerous this particular aspect of the Trump administration is. But I would say that something changed quite significantly when Trump came out with his proposed budget. Even though the amount of the money going to the Pentagon has been enormous and bloated for such a long time, suddenly with Trump calling for an additional $54 billion, which is an increase 
increase of 10%, putting the U.S. taxpayer giving over 60% of our discretionary funds now to the Pentagon, we now have a vehicle with which to do outreach to other sectors of the population. And when, Eugene, you talked about building coalitions, it's been very hard to build these coalitions. I know it was very hard for us as Code Pink to try to even insert the issue of peace into the Women's March, which we were really not able to do. David Swanson did a fabulous job, but had to get 10,000 signatures to get the people doing the climate march to even consider putting the word peace in there, and then they hid it in there so you can barely see and it doesn't appear on any of the flyers and materials. For a variety of reasons we could talk about later, it's been very hard to get the peace issue inserted. Now that we have a $54 billion that is clearly coming from the budgets of other people's, other organizations, things they care about, whether it's the EPA or whether it's Wheels on Meals or whether it's the health departments or education or humanitarian aid, other organizations are starting to understand that this is directly affecting the work that they're doing. And uh, we just were able to launch today a statement put out, I would say, for the first time by the heads of many, many organizations that have not typically been part of this peace movement. So the head of Greenpeace, Annie Leonard, the head of uh, National Organization for Women, Terry O'Neill, people who started the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, like Opel Tomiti and Mi uh, Michelle Alexander. We have people from the indigenous movement. We have people from many organizations that have not paid attention to these issues and thanked us very much as we reached out to them to give them a chance to get on record being against another $54 billion for war. And we are seeing this as an opening now to get a place at the table, but also to get that table to be involved in these peace issues. I think another initiative that David started of these resolutions in uh, city by city is something that we've done before on different issues, like trying to stop a war with Iran. Now we can follow the example and get our cities to pass these resolutions saying no, 54 billion for war, and take this to the mayor's conference that will be happening in Miami Beach in June. And just in the outreach we've been doing, we're finding groups now coming to us and saying, let's work together. Let's see how this relates to sanctuary cities and freedom cities and bring the issue of the war money into those other coalitions. So I'm feeling quite inspired by the response we've been getting to that. Let me just throw out a couple of other things because my job was to be, what are the kinds of things we can do? I mentioned that Yemen is on the brink of famine and that one of the things we need to do really is to stop the weapons sales to the Saudis. It's why I wrote the book to get this movement to understand that the U.S. is arming one of the most repressive extremist countries in the world and that we have to stop those weapons sales. Right now we also, as I mentioned, have to stop the invasion, the attack on this port. But one thing we can do to start getting people to feel the pain is to join Kathy Kelly Voices of Creative Nonviolence, who are starting a fast April 10th at the UN, outside the UN, and we have called on people to join on April 13th in either a day of fast, and if you can't do a day of fast, then do a, a lunch fast, and we're calling on people to give their money. Um, we're, you can do it through Code Pink. We're giving it to UNICEF. But really, this is just a symbolic way to start flexing that mu muscle of empathy that we have uh, lost so much of and that Donald Trump disdains so much. And a couple of other things. 
Uh, we know that profit is so much the motive of war. We've been talking to groups, especially at Catholic universities, since the Pope came out and said that we should not remain silent in the face of the weapons manufacturers, about joining with the divestment campaigns against fossil fuels, the divestment campaigns that have grown up on campuses around this country, including things like divestment from Israeli companies, and adding the issue there of divestment from the weapons industry. Uh, mentioning the issue of Israel-Palestine, that is the one area of our movement that really does have a lot of vim and vigor and young people involved in. It was exciting to see at the APAC protest last week, young people, hundreds of them from the If Not Now Jewish group protesting and getting arrested in front of APAC. I just came this weekend from Jewish Voice for Peace where over a thousand people from the Jewish community together with a lot of their brothers and sisters from the Palestinian community uh, came together to plot and strategize about how to build the movement uh, for the rights of the Palestinians, uh, and there's a lot of exciting work um, that can be done on the boycott, divestment, and sanctions uh, as a strategy for that. I'm really glad we have with us um, Reiner Braun because we have to uh, bring out more of the global issues around this. And he will talk about NATO, but I've just uh, been, uh, um, it, it's been disheartening to see how few people in this country really understand uh, how dangerous NATO is and we have to build up the opposition in this country. Uh, we also, I think, uh, Reiner will talk about the nuclear weapons issue, uh, and I hope that in our discussion we can talk about how we as progressive talk about Russia today, uh, because um, we cannot fall into the, uh, the um, Cold War trashing Russia uh, if we want to do things like ever have a nuclear weapons ban, given that 14,000 of the 15,000 uh, nuclear weapons belong to, are in the hands of the U.S. and Russia. Um, I want to throw out some positive initiatives like uh, one done by our colleague Christine Kahn uh, on, uh, called Women Cross the DMV, where we march from North Korea to South Korea, saying that if you want to deal with the Korean government, what you need to do is finally have a peace treaty to put an end to the Korean War dating back to the 1950s. Um, and finally, I think, um, to go back to Martin Luther King, and the radical things that he called for, because he did call for massive civil disobedience. Uh, he said, we need massive civil disobedience to compel the unwilling federal authorities to yield to the mandates of justice. And that certainly resonates today. He also said, we have two choices, one of nonviolent coexistence or violent co-annihilation. And I would say 50 years later, as we are facing increased militarism, increased climate crisis, rampant racism, this call to nonviolent civil disobedience, nonviolent resistance to upping our level of activism and the tactics that we use is something that resonates more than ever. Thank you. Thank you, Medea Benjamin. Um, I, I actually read an article this past week on a progressive U.S. website uh, arguing for a stronger peace movement that said, we must support NATO, we must support this great force for stability and, uh, and, and peace in the world, but let's not have any dumb wars and so forth. So it's absolutely incredible. But in 1917, Germany was, was Putin and ISIS combined, uh, and every speech 
explaining why Jesus wanted you to go kill and why you needed to save the poor innocent Belgians, you know, was demonization of, of Germans. Uh, so I think it is, it is wonderful that we have a leading peace activist from Germany here a hundred years later uh, to talk with us about combining our efforts for peace in the world across borders. Uh, Reiner Braun, Braun is the co-president of the International Peace Bureau and he is the executive director of the German office of the International Association of Lawyers Against Nuclear Arms. Reiner. Thank you, David, for giving me the great opportunity to speak here. Dear friends in peace, when I was reading again the speech of Martin Luther King preparing a little bit the evening today, first I was thinking, it's a US speech. He's speaking about Vietnam. But when you read it really carefully, it is absolutely an international speech, which is a speech to the whole world. And I would like to underline this first when I speak in some sentences was Martin Luther King was calling on naming extreme materialism. 85 people of the world the richest 85 people have the same income than 3.5 billion people of the world. And 110 people of the world own or have a richness of 81.1 trillion US dollar. In the same minutes of these richness, one billion people has to live with less than $1.25 per day. This is extreme materialism. This is extreme ownership and property. And I think 15 years later, we have, in the sense of Martin Luther King, we have to ask the question, what has this to do with capitalism? And can these world coexist with a capitalistic system in the future? I have the deep feeling that we cannot avoid any longer this discussion. But let me come from this point to the peace point with a very nice quote from a socialist who were died, who was killed in July 1914, Jean Jaurès, a French socialist and peace activist. He said this wonderful sentence, capitalistic and wars are together like clouds and rain. They are deeply depending from each other. And when we are looking to the situation today, you know, 54 billion additional money for the military budget in the United States. This is the same amount of money which is the whole military budget of Great Britain and which is more than the military budget of Russia now. It is 53 billion. And they have to reduce this because of their low income for oil and gas for 2018 to 48 billion. That is the reality. And when we are discussing this reality, we have to say the world is spending every year 
1.7 trillion US dollars for military, purpose, military purposes. 1.7 trillion. You know, we had in the year 2016 a conference in Addis Abeba, and clever politicians and people and scientists were sitting together and discussing for one week how we can pay for the sustainable development goals. The first very positive point of the last years was that the United Nations adopt these sustainable development goals, which means we want to get rid of poverty, hunger, we want to have clear water, education, healthcare system, but better, better environmental conditions for all people in the world and reach this aim in the next 20 to 30 years. But this costs about $300 billion per year. And these guys were sitting together one week, and at the end of the week they say, we will meet again next year without any solution. And, but it is so easy to say how we can pay these the Sustainable Development Goal. How we can pay for the Green Climate Fund of the United Nations, which we so urgently need for getting some solutions for the huge climate challenges. We have to reduce the military budget. That is the easiest answer of the world. But the militarization of all these, the military industrial science media complex stops this, and we have to overcome these, these politics. And let me add one figure which is so extreme that it is really difficult to understand. You know, all the nuclear weapons countries, and Medea was mentioning that, are modernizing their nuclear weapons, all. All nine which up to now have nuclear weapons. This should cost for the next 20 to 30 years one trillion US dollar. Now, every one of you knows when the politician and the military industrial complex now said it costs one, one trillion dollar, it will in the end cost in the minimum 2.5 trillion dollar, in the minimum. So that is a loan for nuclear disarmament should be spent in the next years. And this is not any longer possible. But I will not only speak about horrible figures for the future. I have also, can also speak a little bit about hope when I'm speaking about nuclear weapons. For the first time in history, in the last week at the United Nations, 128 countries were sitting together, together with the peace movement, other social movement, and starting developing a treaty for ban and for prohibit nuclear weapons. This, we never had this in history. This is such a great step forward. And it was done after a long process developed together from peace movements and governments. And these 128 governments, this is the big majority of the country. And it was symbolic that we were sitting in the big hall at the United Nations and your stupid ambassador at the United Nations together with more stupid 15 other ambassadors of the nuclear weapons countries and some of the NATO countries were staying outside and were saying, no, 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 we cannot take part. This is the wrong way. Their way is very easy. Their way is modernization and even use of nuclear weapons. So this is a hope. This will not bring, make the world immediately rid of nuclear weapons, but this could be a very important step 
of stigmatization of nuclear weapons, of developing new norms, and create new worldwide coalitions. And now, the last three minutes to NATO. NATO is the biggest military alliance in the world. NATO surrounded Russia. NATO was against the will of the people and international negotiations marching from 1990 to 2003 to the east. This is absolutely dangerous. Additionally, we are creating a missile defense system at the border to Russia. NATO is spending $800 billion per year. It is the biggest military alliance in history. For what? For the poor Russia with the 53 billion? For dominance of the Western countries, for their economic resources, for profit. And so we have to overcome NATO when we really want to keep and developing peace. So please go home and inform your people in the States about how dangerous is NATO and that there is really no reason to, to have NATO in the future. NATO is one of the biggest obstacles for developing a peace process in the world, and we have alternatives. The name of the alternatives is common security and disarmament. And for all of this, we need what, and I think all of you will remember this quote, what the New York Times was naming on the 16th of February 2003, the second superpower peace movement. Why she was doing the New York Times doing this? Because this was the day after 50 million people marching all around the world for peace against the Iraq war. We have to go this way again. There is no alternative to this. And I'm happy that you start with big action on the 20th and 21st of January. Let us put our forces together. Let us engage again more people in the peace movement, better and broader coalition building on both sides of the Atlantic and with all the new powers in the world. This can really fulfill peace and disarmament, what we need that our planet can survive. Thank you. You've been listening to Other Voices, Other Choices, podcast number eight. This episode is Remembering Past Wars and Preventing the Next, part one, and is the first half of an event which took place in Washington, D.C. on April 4, 2017. You can find a video of the entire event on my blog, OtherVoicesOtherChoices.com, and at the YouTube channel of the same name. You can find the podcast on iTunes. The moderator for this event was David Swanson of World Beyond War. I'm your host, Wilton Vaught. Thanks for listening.